Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome back for another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me is my brother, Out of Arms, who would definitely accompany me on a suicide mission if it meant trying to save the lives of thousands. Private Patch. That's me, although I might have to second-guess that if I didn't have enough food. Wow! <laughs> All right. It's a conditional. Well. It's a conditional altruism. <laughs> so as long as Sam is along to cook your meals for you... Absolutely. Mr. Frodo, you will be fine. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> well, today we are going to be chatting about the knockout World War I film, 1917, from director Sam Mendes. But real quick, a note before we get going. Coming up very soon in our Facebook group will be the nomination process for the 2020 Feelers Choice Awards. This is where you, our listeners, and community get a chance to participate fully in an awards process. There will be polls for each award, and the top five vote-getters will become the nominees. And then a couple of weeks later, we'll share the final ballot in the group and have all of you pick our winners. The key here is that in order to participate and make sure that not just anyone is putting in their two cents, we keep this process locked down to the awesome discussion group. So if you're not already a part of it, please consider joining. You can get there at facebook.com slash groups slash film. There is a link in the show notes of the episode you're listening to. You can type in the words feeling film in the search bar and find it in Facebook. We would absolutely love to have you. And also just a quick reminder that if you haven't gotten around to leaving us a review on iTunes or Apple podcasts or whatever the heck they're calling it these days, for some reason, it's very important to our Rotten Tomatoes status and several other critics groups that we have positive and numerous iTunes reviews. They don't really count them from other sites, which is a bit frustrating. So if you are an Apple podcast or iTunes user, if you have access to those programs and you could drop us a five-star review with even just a couple of words saying what you feel about the podcast or without the words, just a five-star rating would do. Uh, either of those things helps us out a lot, helps us get noticed more and bring more people into these awesome conversations with us. Okay, maybe that wasn't quite so quick, but I feel it was, you know, semi-quick. Right, Patrick? Exactly. It was my version of a one-take notes discussion. I think it was good. I, I think it was successful. All right, cool. Well, quick spoiler alert. We are talking about 1917, the film released in limited cities earlier in Christmas of 2019 and just hit wide release this weekend. So finally, everyone is getting a chance to go and see this incredible motion picture. We are going to spoil it. Uh, and that's pretty much all I have to say about that. So if you don't want to have it spoiled, then turn away now and come back after you've seen the movie. Patrick, what was your one word takeaway? I initially said bathroom, but that was not going to be it just because hold on. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, knowing what I knew about the movie, I did not want to miss a moment of it because of the unique way that um, it was shot. And we'll talk more about that. But I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I've been drinking a lot of water lately. Please don't make me have to. I hope I don't have to go. I rarely do. I've gotten into a habit of seeing so many movies in the theater that 
my biorhythms are basically like, oh, he's sitting down in a theater. Let's hold off, guys. Fortunately, it held off and I got to see the entire movie. As a result, my actual one word takeaway was immersive. And I got to tell you, Aaron, I don't know that I've ever experienced something like this in the theater where I was captured from the moment that we get introduced to our two main characters all the way up until the end credits. And it wasn't that I wanted it, I didn't want it to end, but I didn't want to stop the journey. I wasn't ever looking at my watch to figure out, oh, have we hit the two hour runtime? I was completely invested in the experience that these two characters were going through and how they responded to everything going on around them. And it felt somewhat video game-esque. It felt like I was participating and not just watching at times, which is something that's very difficult to do, not only emotionally, but actually just from a visceral standpoint, from a physical standpoint. I felt like I was walking alongside with them. I felt like I was walking backwards watching them sometimes. I felt like I was looking up with them and ducking with them. All of these things made 1917 probably one of, if not the most immersive experiences that I've had going into a film. Yeah, or coming out of it, I guess, in this case. Coming out, yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's funny you say that because my one-word takeaway was immersive as well, and I don't know if that's ever happened, at least not on purpose. We haven't just randomly chosen the same word. So take that as a vote of confidence in its immersion. It, It is much like very few theater experiences I've ever had. Um, and certainly not a war film. So Dunkirk for a war film would be the closest comparison um, with its ticking clock mechanic, which you essentially have in play here in 1917 as well. Uh, the closest I could say is, you know, a Mad Max Fury Road is very similar with its propulsive nature. Uh, and then the absolute closest is gravity to me. Is It feels like the experience I had in gravity where you're just on the edge of your seat, you're constantly worried about what's going to happen and if the character is going to get out alone and when or alive. And when you only have one or two characters to follow, you are able to become much more invested in them. So I think, yes, it is an astonishing, immersive experience. It left me pretty shaken when I came out of it. It is that kind of movie where everybody immediately goes online to social media and says, oh, my God, yes, you know, this was an incredible experience. That's because it is right. You know, people don't do that unless they're having that reaction to it. I thought that the one continuous shot gimmick um, was done well and resulted in an experience that, you know, was very compelling and increasingly anxiety inducing uh, as the emotional drama of the story plays out. Like you mentioned, being up close and personal with the two protagonists on their journey um, you know, walking along these action-packed front lines and landscapes, and then that ticking clock. You know, I was clenching my armrests tightly, basically from start to finish. I didn't take any notes. Usually, I'm trying to scribble notes, and I couldn't. I couldn't like bring myself to not, because when I take notes, I have to look down for half a second, or I, you know, I'm, there's those momentary lapses. And like you said, I was the same way. I didn't want to miss even a second. So it's that kind of movie. It's the one you want to see on the big screen because it does pull you into that experience in a way that so very few films, even blockbuster films do. So it's totally immersive 
and it is really just an incredible movie. While my buddy is muted, I'd like to let you know that we are a great podcast worthy to listen to every week. So feel free to download us, listen regularly, and here we go. We're back. <sighs> well, let me start again <laughs> when you can actually hear me. <laughs> well, for better or worse, this film's selling point has become its talking point as well, and that is this illusion of a one continuous shot. It is pretty undeniably masterfully done, but... The question I have, or the thing I want to talk to you about, is whether or not you feel it enhances the storytelling, or did you find it at all distracting? And the reason I ask is because, A, it's a conversation that's happening all over the place around this movie, but for me, even, there was an element of going into this and watching it where I found myself trying to find the cuts and the first time I watched the movie I'm happy to say the immersiveness of it the propulsiveness of it the intensity and anxiety inducing nature of it pulled me out of my like hyper aware functioning and I didn't I eventually I just kind of didn't care like I was worried about what was happening to the characters on screen I was in the moment when I got a chance to watch it again, though, the second time, I was definitely looking for the movie magic behind the movie and trying to figure out what was going on. And so I'm curious how your first experience, because I think you've only seen it once. How was that for you? Was it distracting at all, like I said, or did it enhance the storytelling? Well, my short answer is yes, <laughs> because All right. I, exper I experienced both. Knowing what type of technique was being used going in, I definitely had an awareness of looking for where the cuts could be. It's like when you're watching a magic show, and part of the fun is figuring, or at least questioning, how did he do that? How did that work? But there's a part of you in a magic show that kind of says, you know what? I'm in awe of the fact that I don't know how it's done. And so I'm just going to enjoy the experience. And that's really how I felt leaving the theater. By the time we got to the two main characters leaving the bunker of where they were, I was really all in in terms of being connected to them. Something interesting came out of my conversation with my wife. We were talking about it as we were leaving and I said, in any other story that follows two characters where you have the loss of one character at some point along the way, being able to experience that story in one shot allows you to actually connect with that moment only a little time later. So case in point, you have... A typical movie where you have, if this movie had taken place with one shot or with multiple shots, with just a standard filmmaking style, and it took place over the course of like several days, the death that happened to Blake wouldn't have felt to me as emotionally weighty as it did. Because when I'm hearing Schofield tell his brother, 
that his brother's dead, I'm thinking about that and going, oh my gosh, that happened less than 24 hours ago. That happened less than 16 hours ago. This just happened. As opposed to when you have a main character that dies along a journey and you have these different cuts that happen that sort of give you like two hours later, 10 hours later, 15 hours later, two days later, you've almost like kind of skipped over part of that grieving period. Like it's not fresh anymore. So when you have a technique like that, where you're constantly following these folks and constantly following Schofield to the end and you get to that moment, you feel the weight of when he has, uh, you feel the weight of him telling his brother that he died. And I, I think that it wouldn't have been as effective had it just been a standard story with cuts here and there, even if the timeline hadn't been any different. There's something about staying with these guys and watching them react to things, watching Roger Deakins use the camera angle to show what's happening around them to help create more of that drama gives me more of that emotional weight as opposed to a hard cut to a facial expression and then a hard cut to what's going on and then a hard cut back to the facial expression. It leaves you feeling that emotion in the moment as opposed to trying to process it from shot to shot to shot to shot to shot. Um, it's very smooth in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel as jarring as a typical war film would be. And I don't know that you necessarily lose um, some of that intensity. I think it's just retranslated. I think there's still some intensity there. It's just translated differently in that particular style. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely agree. And I think the way in which you start this movie off is particularly awesome. It is right off the bat. Like the first frame of the movie, we are honing in on these two privates sitting by a tree. We have to kind of fill in the, the gaps, right? And I like that. I like the idea like we don't know what they've been doing leading up to this moment in time because it doesn't matter. What matters is that a sergeant or whoever has come over and said, hey, go see the general. It's time to, to move, right? So we can immediately use our brains and our knowledge of history to try and imagine what might have gone on. Like this could be their first break in who knows how long. They may have been fighting, involved in actual combat. They may have been waiting for weeks for something to happen. Who knows? But we see them in a period of rest, and then it is immediately interrupted. And it is just 100% following them from that point forward. And I think, particularly with the characters, and the the one-shot, continuous thing, nature of it, it especially helps to heighten Private Blake's increasing nervousness about the mission and, and desire to, like, get going. Like, you really like you. I think you you made it. You made a great point about how, without the cuts, we're staying on their faces. So you're watching it kind of develop as he's becoming frustrated or as he's in a hurry and rushing. And it's not just a moment where you get a shot of him and then a whole bunch of other stuff is happening and then you shoot back to him. That helps out a lot. Um, the element of it that I enjoy particularly, and I know some people will, some people probably won't, 
is for me, who plays a lot of video games, I feel like I am either controlling these characters or I am right there in the middle of this action in a video game cinematic with them at so many times. There are some over-the-shoulder shots where literally you as a viewer are center in the screen and you might have like Blake and Schofield just off to your left and to your right where you're between them and things are happening or conversations are happening and it's like you are a participant in this story. It's like you are the third private that is with them on this journey and dude, it's awesome. Like there were multiple times where I felt like I was like, I just want to grab, give me the controller, man. Let me take control of you and like, let me shoot. Cause you're terrible. Let me be your, you know, hit this sniper. Cause you're bad. Um, and you know, I wanted to, I felt like I could do that. Like I felt very a part of the story and it is a, an amazing effort by Deacons and I think Lee Smith combined and Lee Smith is, uh, you know, one of the best editors working. He does a lot of work with Christopher Nolan as well. Um, I don't know if he's British. Maybe that's why. He probably is. Probably. Yeah, probably. and that's probably why he does Sam Mendes and Christopher Nolan. There's all these comparisons, you know, between this and Dunkirk. Whatever. We're not going to get into that because I don't care about it. I like them both. I love them both. And, yes, they have similarities. And they are also completely different. And a lot of the same people worked on both of them. And whatever. Yay, so good movies. <laughs> So here's the other thing about 1917 as a as a narrative is that it is telling a story that isn't and I'm going to say this very respectfully isn't very important it's important but it's not a famous this is what happened on this day this isn't Dunkirk this isn't Pearl Harbor this is not historically anything that we know about so to be able to get your audience invested with these two characters and the mission that they're on is a huge feat because you've at least got to have typically some investment by your audience for a historical narrative to say, Oh yeah, I remember that. My, the thing I'm looking forward to this week is having a conversation with a, a friend of mine who I work with. I've, I've talked about him on the show before and he's, he's former military very excited to see this one. Very down on Midway, by the way, but very excited to see this one. I'm curious, without some kind of historical context, how he's going to react to this. It'll be a really interesting conversation. But I, this is one of those, it's kind of like Little Women. I didn't really know much about it. I wasn't really interested in it. In fact, I think at one point when the initial trailers came out, we didn't, because it didn't have an actual historical event to tie to we're like this might be some kind of time travel movie you know i think there was some conversation about that there was a lot a lot of speculation about what it was the fact that it was pretty straightforward was probably one of the more surprising things the most surprising thing was how much i enjoyed it even though i didn't have any kind of major event to tie it to like oh this really happened maybe it did maybe it didn't but it was still important within the confines of the narrative yeah, I, I agree. I think not having a specific event to necessarily tie to was a benefit to this story. It helps people, you know, if people are busy focusing on both the one shot nature of it 
and trying to compare it in their heads to a historical event and decide is it accurate or not, then you really start losing people because they're doing too much mental gymnastics instead of just feeling the story and it draws them out of it. And so two of two, two of those things at once would be way too much. Um, now that being said, this is a story based on Mendez's grandfather's experiences running me- messages in World War One. So this comes from like true events in the sense that he's recreating something that probably happened, not necessarily this battalion and doing this exact thing, but something very similar to this probably took place many times during world war one, which is enough for me. Right. And that's, it's great. And, um, and I like that as well, but yeah, so the one, just to wrap up, like the one shot nature, man, I think it's awesome. And I had a blast with it. And I, absolutely don't want every film to try and do this and i think that it is incredibly hard to do Um, there are definitely moments where you know there's a few specific shots i can think of where the screen kind of goes to black or you might sweep just far enough around that you lose a view for half a second and you can tell like those were the couple of moments but None of that matters to me. Like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if it's not one shot, right? You know what I mean? Like, I like the feeling that it gives me. And that's what Mendez was going for. It has nothing to do with like, hey, I'm going to try to make this movie so I can get all of these technical awards for being really cool with the gimmick. No, he chose to shoot the movie this way because he felt like it would create an immersive atmosphere, which is exactly what you and I came away with it. Like, that was the goal. And in that, he was incredibly successful. That's a trademark of a really good director who isn't trying to be funny or be clever for the sake of being funny or clever. He has a story. He looks at his resources and says, Hmm, how could we make this more interesting in terms of, I want this to come out of it. Why don't we try this? Why don't we try that? Would it have been as effective if it was a straight on, standard war movie probably i think the one shot elevated it but it elevated it with purpose not from a gimmick standpoint just in the same way that i think christopher nolan why we love him so much is because he uses his style to elevate what would otherwise be pretty ordinary stories memento comes to mind it's interesting in and of itself but when you take his storytelling device and put it on top of that, it makes it that much better. And I don't know, maybe Mendez was like, look, a lot of people may not really know or care about this particular part of World War One, these messenger stories that I'm telling. How could I make that a little bit better? But in no way did I think he was trying to make it a gimmick and to try to win any kind of special awards. I really think that it's a way to tell a story that is somewhat refreshing and to help elevate it. 100% agree. Well, when it starts, Private Blake, who is played by an actor named Dean Charles Chapman, and I'm pointing that out for one specific reason, Patrick. There are very few people in this world that I have met or know of even that have two first names. And it is really cool that this guy's name is Dean Charles. I think that's awesome. It's hyphenated. That's very British. Um, I would, yeah. Yeah, it's very British. And very he, British look at he, you. Conven- he convinces uh, Private Schofield, played by George McKay, to come along on this mission. And, you know, I think 
again with the immersive nature right away you feel oh boy you know what is private Schofield getting roped into here and the way that the story starts to build this relationship between them i enjoyed it very much because we don't have a backstory we don't know if these guys are buds or if they're like just two dudes in a battalion who know each other because they went through boot camp together and they are hanging out by a tree and now they're forced into this relationship. None of that really matters. What matters is what actually takes place once they start going. And Schofield says, yes. And I felt right away because of the reluctant nature of Schofield and because I felt like he was getting roped into this, I thought that the movie was setting us up for a tragic loss of Schofield. That's what I expected, to be completely honest with you. It was like, okay, this is the guy that's going to come along to help. So, of course, he's going to end up dying or getting seriously injured because he tried to help his buddy out. and It's going to be really emotional. But the film flips that around. And what was a surprise to me is that Blake is the one who has gone fairly early. And frankly, that anybody is gone as early as they're gone was pretty shocking. I certainly did not expect one of the two guys to be exiting the film within the first third of the movie. That was surprising. And the way in which Blake does exit the field is also surprising. It happens off screen, essentially. Like, the camera barely pans around to right when he's getting stabbed. But it's not like every other movie in the world where we're on Blake and this thing is happening and then we cut to the reaction of Schofield, who's over here doing something else. Instead, we're with Schofield... Basically, while this thing is happening to Blake, and I don't know, it had a very interesting effect on me. But like I said, I I expected it to be the other way around. And overall, the course of the film, I feel like some people have maybe come away from this thinking it was emotionally distant. You mentioned it doesn't really have a lot of narrative to it. It is a video game point A to point B mission go from here to here crap happens along the way obstacles you have to overcome but like it is not a lot of emotional growth and life-changing i mean it's life-changing but you know like not deep and decade spanning type of issues are being dealt with here it is in the moment stuff and so i wondered how that works for you just this it's a two-man structure that quickly goes down to a one-man structure and was it emotionally effective for you because we both said it was immersive we both felt on edge with the intensity and we both love the technical aspects of how it's shot but what did you feel anything i did and i was surprised too that blake died the trailers really indicated from that whole you have a brother (laughs) at the start of the trailer that ah this is going to be blake's story He's going to get the message to the 8th, and there might be some casualties along the way. Again, this comes from my ignorance of not really knowing much about the movie, apart from seeing that same trailer playing over and over and over again with all these other movies that I saw in the theater. But it did surprise me that he died early on and that he died the way he did. Not just off screen, although that's something very interesting, but also that he was dying from trying to be a nice guy and he was stabbed in fact at one point Aaron I was like oh they're okay he's not gonna no he can't be oh he died and wow he's pale he's he's dead what 
I I I kind of felt my jaw drop a little bit because that's not supposed to happen. He was supposed to be the hero. He was supposed to be the one. He was the one connected to his brother. But I think that there were a couple of moments about 10 to 15 minutes prior where they're having these conversations. There's this particular one about the medal that Schofield wins and Blake's like surprised that he won one and didn't have it. And he goes, it's just a bunch of tin. I sold it for wine because his expectation was that he wasn't going to be able to go home. In fact, one of my almost connecting points was that, that conversation when he talks about, I never want to go home again because I know I can't probably go back. He said that was the worst to be home knowing that I had to leave and knowing that I couldn't come back. It showed really his attitude of futility of saying, I pretty much kind of given up on the idea that either the war is going to end in my lifetime or that I'm actually going to survive to be able to go home. And so watching that and then seeing how Blake is the one that sacrificed, it surprised me because what it did for me from an emotional standpoint is it put a heavier weight on Schofield, obviously from being the only guy, but it was almost like it transferred the motivation of Blake to Schofield because early on we know that Schofield doesn't want to do this. He, in fact, there's this really great sequence where when Blake finds out that his brother's battalion is going into a trap, I mean, he books it. He does not stop. And Schofield's like, stop, wait, hold on, wait, wait. That whole sequence helped me understand that Schofield's like, look, this may not be the best idea or, hey, we need to get some more information to see that transferred in that moment where he is carrying Blake off to the side and he ends up meeting those other guys that are coming around, I guess the medics or whoever it is from this other battalion. It really helped transfer that emotional weight that I was feeling with Blake onto Schofield and it made his arc and its conclusion that much more satisfying because again I felt the loss of Blake near the end where I wouldn't have felt that before and having Schofield carry that literally figuratively whatever you want to call it was really effective yeah I couldn't agree more it, it was so to use the Lord of the Rings analogy again it's like if Frodo is killed suddenly halfway through the journey to Mordor and all of a sudden Sam, who was just along for the ride because he's Frodo's friend, has to pick up the ring and carry on, right? It's very similar to that type of situation. And I, I connected with the same thing you did, which is him not just needing to deliver the message to save the thousands of men in the battalion from the potential sneak attack, but specifically to finish what Blake was starting. And in a way of paying honor to Blake for giving his life, he had a renewed determination to sort of pick up that same just intense need to do this and do it for him, right? And I think there's also an element of I'm not going to allow Blake's brother to die now that Blake has died. Like 
this would be the worst case scenario if we lose both of them. I was going to say, it, it makes that beginning sequence where we don't really know a lot about them and we kind of get the hint that they're not best friends. They're really just kind of boot camp buddies more important because it would make sense if you had two besties that are going on this thing for one of them to die and the other person's like, I will carry on this. It feels a lot more melodramatic. That would be melodramatic. Yes, it would. Exactly. And this is not, this is natural. Right. And so to go back to that comment you made about the kill happens off screen somewhat suddenly, like, I don't even know if I forget if the camera pans around quickly or if it pans around slowly to show us Blake's death or his being stabbed. But the fact is, I feel like Mendez was saying, this is what it's like. It's not all dramatic. Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes they're right out of your field of view. Yeah, exactly. Somebody dies and you don't see it until you turn your head. Exactly. And so in a lot of ways, that's even more effective because it's not melodramatic, because it's not very cinematic. That ordinariness makes the movie extraordinary in and of itself because it takes us on this ordinary journey to do an ordinary thing even though crazy things happen that's the ordinary life of war it's really not mundane it's just this is the new normal when you're at war Uh, yeah I, i think so and i personally feel like mckay who is playing private schofield gives an incredible performance here. I actually had him in my short list for best supporting actor this year, and I haven't seen his name thrown around much. He's really an unknown as far as the world goes. And I think that that was the right choice here is to put two guys that I don't recognize in these leading roles versus two guys that I am comparing to other performances or other characters they may have played. These dudes are just literally world war one privates to me like i don't know them from adam and i thought that you know when he is carrying the weight of this mission so it's very light on dialogue film in general but specifically once blake is dead the movie doesn't have a lot of talking you know there's some when mckay meets the battalion that gives him a ride they they have some conversations briefly and there's you know scattered throughout there's some conversations that happen But there's a lot of time when it's just Blake kind of going on his own. And I loved it, Patrick. We don't have voiceover narration. Uh, We don't have text on the screen trying to tell us what's going on. It's in his performance. It's in the physicality of his performance combined with the way that Deacons puts the camera on him in what angle and in what lighting, etc. Like that one incredible, incredible, incredible sequence that is so memorable where the church and the town is burning and it's, and there's a big portion of this, this very reminiscent of wonder woman, of course, because this is no man's land and these little French towns all look the same. Um, I don't know if you've watched it yet, but the movie, there's a movie we're going to be talking about here on the podcast in a few days or whatever. It's called Sergeant Stubby. Did you watch it? Not yet. Okay. So it's set in world war one and they're in France and there's these towns and it looks just like this, only not dark with, flames you know burning at the time and it reminded me of that it's like this this chapel 
is this shot of a chapel in a French city during World War One is very famous, and we see it in here, and we have, you know, a soldier coming at Blake, and just you watch his face, and you get the intensity on his face you get the fear on his face when he is going up to find out what's happening with the sniper that he shot is he really dead you you get that sense of absolute terror he has when he's having to kill the german soldier and he really just wants to keep him quiet like he doesn't want to have you can tell like he doesn't want to have to do this he just wants to get to the damn river and get on his way right yeah and i think that the performance that he gives is really important and really contributes to that immersive nature, even though we don't have dialogue to give us his thoughts and exposition. Well, I, I tell you, the score is what elevates that particular sequence. There, I, I've tried, and hopefully, twenty twenty will be more of a deliberate attempt to listen to the scores of movies. I love, I love musical scores. I mean, this has been a passion of mine for years, but. I've kind of gotten off track in terms of just paying attention to that stuff unless they just really stand out. This particular sequence that Newman plays with a bunch of drum beats, I think is absolutely perfect for that whole sequence. Side note, I believe the German soldiers were in the same boot camp as the Imperial stormtroopers because they couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. <laughs> that was that was pretty bad. But I think that that actually is probably fairly realistic with the yeah. weaponry that was from the sure. time period. Might I suggest real quick before we move away from it? So I agree with you on the score. It is right there. It might be my favorite score of the year. It's Thomas Newman. Um, I absolutely loved his score from Tolkien earlier this year or last year now, 2019 as well. But he's he's so phenomenal. I, I would love to see him get an Oscar. Uh, our listener, uh, Stephen Keller, longtime listener, longtime supporter, he does a thing called Movie Music Mondays. So every Monday, he listens to the scores from the new films that he saw in a theater that previous weekend. Might I suggest that you take up something of a Music Movies Monday? Now, that was terrible. A Movie Music Monday uh, type of resolution for 2020. And that will give you a benchmark to make sure that you are actually listening to scores i will i will take that into consideration there you go but yeah i agree with you man the music the production value all of that is it, it all works together i just i'm particularly impressed with this actor that i knew nothing about carrying this film emotionally for me um in so many ways um with his performance physically and it, and it goes all the way up to the point where he is racing to meet Blake's brother and that emotional scene. And that was my almost connecting point um, is the final moments for private Schofield when he finally gets to Blake's brother and, Oh man, it is, it's crushing. Like if, if it doesn't affect people, I don't know where they've been for the last hour and 45 minutes because it was really hard to watch. To, and you watch a man who is very much in the throes of a battle and he's learning his brother died and he's trying to internalize and, and deal with it without dealing with it. And it's all over his face. And since we're talking about him right now, McKay, the way in which McKay has to respond to that as Private Schofield is particularly important. And I love that he gives him time he doesn't say a bunch. 
And I love that he eventually does say something and what he does tell him. And then he gives him the things from his brother to have with him. And then he asks permission to write his mom. That is one of the sweetest things you could ever have done, I think, in this scenario. And then what really gives this movie a ton of weight for me retroactively, and I think made it a lot better for me, not the movie wasn't better than it was the first time, but made it and gave it an additional thing for me to think about when I rewatched the movie is at the end of this movie, Schofield goes off and he again gets to sit down by a tree, which is where we start right in a moment of rest. So this movie is coded bookended by a rest period and a rest period, one with two people, one without. And Schofield, it's revealed, I don't think it was before this, I think this is the first time we find out that he's married and has kids. And I was like, what? Like, this is a guy who hasn't brought this up. He hasn't, like, like Patrick, and I, and I relate to it because I'm the opposite of that, right? I'm the man who will blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you everything that's going on in my life. I'll tell you all about my emotions constantly. This guy kept it in and really made someone else's relationships his own priority and finding out that there are these people out there that love him and that he has in his life. It was powerful for me. And I was just, I, I wept because I was so happy that he didn't die and that they are able to have him come home eventually. The fact that you see that message at the end that he, and he turns the picture over and it says, come back to us. I think was a great, great last moment. Um, I'm going to go ahead and plug a video game that I absolutely adore. It's one of my favorites. It's called Brothers, The Tale of Two Sons. It came out several years ago. Similar flavor to a movie like this. Very immersive, very much uh, centering around two brothers, obviously. But there is the gameplay itself, the mechanics of the game really elevate what you and I are experiencing from our takeaway from 1917, which is this connection with these individuals. And when there is loss, how, how deeply that's felt from the, from the spectating standpoint, but to be able to, the, the coda, the bookend of the state of rest not only has a visual difference, two instead or one instead of two, but also a a different kind of emotional tone. At least that's what I picked up on. When he sits back against that tree, it's white. It's it feels very pure. He I feel like there's a sense of weird satisfaction that he has. Like it is finished. It is done. I've done my mission. I've I've accomplished this. I can rest as opposed to the beginning where he's resting with Blake, but in a place where he's ready to get up at any particular moment. Like I'm not saying he's, he wasn't on guard necessarily, but I felt like there was a sense of release of tension, a release of emotions when he leaned back against that tree at the moment where he pulls out the picture because you're right for the entire narrative, the entire movie, we don't know much about him. He never pulls out a picture. There are so many times during that 18 hours or however long it was that he could have brought that out. And again, 
to play up the melodramaticness of it could have looked at that picture of his family and said, I'm coming home to you, babe, you know, or whatever. Didn't do that. It was very much appropriate that he did it when he did. And I think that that visual bookend was incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Well, peppered throughout the film is a who's who of famous supporting actors. And I mentioned already, I really enjoy the fact that our two protagonists are not people who are well known. But every Brit who is amazing decided they wanted to be part of this movie, apparently. Well, not everyone, but so many did. And I'm just curious. I'm going to run through the list of them. I'm wondering who stuck out to you, if anybody of these guys, what you thought about them. So we had General Aaron Moore, uh, played by Colin Firth, who gives the initial orders. We have Lieutenant Leslie, played by Andrew Scott, who is the one who sends them into no man's land with a flare, but wants it back. Uh, we have Captain Smith, played by Mark Strong, who shows up in the caravan and gives Schofield a ride after Blake's death. We have Colonel McKenzie, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who is in charge of the 2nd Battalion and really, really doesn't want to have to call off the attack. And then we have Lieutenant Joseph Blake, uh, the brother of Private Blake, played by Richard Madden, and uh, he is of Game of Thrones uh, fame. So, any of these guys make you go, oh my gosh, that's blah, blah, blah. And did any of them add anything to the story or were they distracting for you? They weren't distracting, uh, but they weren't necessarily standouts either. I, I know Richard Madden, but not from Game of Thrones because I haven't watched it. Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch, obviously I knew them from the trailers. Um, Andrew Scott and Mark Strong were two characters because I didn't see them prior to seeing the movie were very refreshing in and of themselves, not just because of their fame as actors, but of what they did for the story. Very appropriate, very much pushing of the of the narrative, and in ways that felt very believable. I absolutely love that line. Um, if you if you happen to remember, throw the flare back. Um, we're we're short. It's just so matter of fact. He is just absolutely someone who has been just riddled with the, the effects of war and is just pissed off at everybody and everything. And it's just like, I'm just whatever. It's Tuesday, that kind of thing. But then you have Mark Strong, who I think was one of the surprising standout supporting performances for me. The way in which I think there's a moment where Schofield gets off the truck because the the bridge has been blown and he says, I have to go. And I don't know. I wish I could remember what he says, but he basically says, good luck or best of luck to you. It's something about the way in which he shakes his hand. He doesn't nod. He doesn't do anything like that. But there's something about it that made me feel like, man, that guy in that moment believes in what he's doing, but at the same time knows that he could easily get blown up in the next two or three minutes. It, he felt probably the most militaristic. I, that's probably not a great word, but um, his performance overall, just in that small sequence, was probably one of my favorite supporting performances. Yeah, I, so I like them all, and that's why I wanted to bring them all up, because I actually found them all to be incredibly enhancing to the film. Because they gave it this unique flavor where 
I was like, okay, so we live in this world with these two dudes that I don't know, and I'm getting to know them, but there's these people in this world. There's heroes. For some reason, I kept thinking, I was like, man, there's heroes. So I, I, I don't know why I equated like fame to heroism or anything. It's not like they're, I wasn't thinking of them in terms of their being war heroes, but it just, in terms of their knownness, that's not a word. Um, I really enjoyed it when Colin Firth was there. And I think part of it, the reason I was able to enjoy it is because they were not just like supporting characters, but I mean, Patrick, none of them had more than two minutes on screen. It felt like, so they weren't distracting for me. Um, but they did, I think, add a lot of, to it because when you have Colin Firth, who is so royal just by nature in his acting, he feels like he holds this gravitas when he's giving you those orders, man, I, I felt lit. You know what I mean? Like there was no question in me about it. And I think that having these different people who are so talented be checkpoints in their journey, it lends uh, an air of uh, not sincerity, but just, I don't know. I don't know what the right word for it is, but Well, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but the point is that I thought that they definitely added to it. Um, Andrew Scott, for me, is one of my favorite moments of the entire movie. I love him. Personal connection for him is mostly from Sherlock. There's a wonderful episode of Black Mirror that features him as well. And he's just incredible, I think. And like you said, his war weariness, his just don't give a crap anymore because it's all futile anyway like that's what helps sell this world that everything is kind of for nothing cumberbatch says the same thing as colonel mckenzie when schofield finally gets to him he's like listen even if what you're telling me is true it doesn't matter like i'm not stopping because tomorrow they're gonna send another message that tells me to attack and the same thing's gonna happen and those guys, man, I, I just, I felt so much stronger about this because I knew those actors for some reason. I felt like I was able to, as a partner in this story with Private Schofield or Private Blake, I was able to buy in because these guys had a level of respect that just kind of was built in for them. Yeah, there's a level of credibility that exists that's the freaking word. God dang it, man. Like I sat here and freaking paused the podcast for like a minute while I tried to think of this stupid <laughs> word and couldn't come back. That's so, it. It's credibility. Thank yeah. you. Sometimes carry on <laughs> that level of credibility from being famous actors helps these other characters, these two characters anchor in to certain points in the movie. And as you were talking, it reminded me of why the moment that I really, really love Captain Smith is he tells Schofield, make sure you have witnesses because these guys, some of these guys just want the fight. And that's very true. I mean, when you're in this thing for so long, at some point, and this goes back to what, what McKenzie was talking about, that at some point you just got to go. You got, you've got to just do this. And for the sake of just wanting it all to be over, and you'd almost rather just ignore the orders 
and just go in because these guys are just itching not to kill somebody but for just to get it done. And when you have messages every day that say, stop, go, stop, go, stop, go, um, I can respect McKenzie's frustration, but I think it was really enhanced by um, by by Smith's character who – or excuse me, yeah, uh, Mark Strong's character, Captain Smith, who says, make sure you have witnesses because these guys are not – they're either going to choose not to believe you or – they're going to not believe you anyway because they're so headstrong into getting this done. Headstrong? <laughs> strong. Mark, yeah. Strong. strong. Head strong. He, he was strong. No, no. I was like, his name's Mark Strong. So I was like, sorry, sorry. He's, he's Mark Strong and he's headstrong. He's both, anyway. He's dual strong. I agree with you. Again, <laughs> like I have all podcasts. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't just briefly touch on this, I think. So this is a war movie and most war movies thematically kind of are giving a message of some sort they're saying something about the battle the time period the state of the world during these historic fights did any of that come through this movie to you did you feel like 1917 was trying to say anything on a macro or micro level about world war one maybe not about world war one specifically but I think that Mendez as a director and as a screenwriter was saying that everyone mattered. Even the small things that we don't know about that are not written down in the history books or are put on biography or on the history channel. Everyone that fought mattered. Everyone that did a job mattered. Um, there's that whole sequence where Schofield is going through the, I guess the medical camp, the medical tents, and we get to see all the different effects of that first wave attack. And it reminded me that everyone who was in that first wave mattered. And I think we tend to forget that because what we, what we hear are the stories of a certain group that did something amazing, the Tuskegee Airmen and what they did. Um, and the just, a specific team here and there or a battalion there not having that. I think 1917 allowed us the ability to really immerse ourselves in what the everyman was experiencing. That person who was drafted, fought, lived, died, whatever the result was and continued to live his life more than anything. It, it makes me value respect and think about more sincerely the folks that call themselves veterans who have fought in those actual wars, Vietnam, World War II, um, because they're not the ones that are in the paper. They're not the ones who did something significant. My grandfather was that way. You know, he fought in World War II. I regret that I never got a chance to ask him about his experience in that. Um, my dad, I think he was, he was, He's Navy, but he didn't fight in a war, and that doesn't negate the service that he provided. But I think 1917 and Mendez specifically are giving us a little bit of a peek into what those that don't necessarily get their story told got to experience or had to experience. Yeah, I would agree as well with that. Uh, I think that you know there's a great moment in the movie that also could be easily a connecting point when Schofield finally comes upon 
this group of soldiers that are in the forest and he just walks up and he hears someone singing and they're all silently sitting around in clumps listening to this uh, and he's trying to figure out who they are he's just gone through you know the river and the fight with the germans in the town and he's tired he's worn out he's he's at the end of his rope and there's a restoration that he kind of gains from this scene and yet at the same time it's a motivation slash inspiration type of event but it's very melancholy as well it's not like you might see in a modern war film where there, you know, you might see it more like a football game, like a pregame ritual with a bunch of hooping and hollering and, you know, yelling and clapping and screaming and getting each other fired up and energized. This is um, a, a lot of reflection going on in that song, specifically if you listen to the lyrics of it as well. And then there's a prayer and then it's a quiet march off to what is probably going to be their death for many of them, which they know. And that is the way that war was fought. It wasn't extra dramatic. Again, this is a scene that for me isn't melodramatic. You know, in another movie, it might be melodramatic to do the same exact scene. But I think that what could have been here would have been a lot more, like more melodramatic. And instead it felt very natural to me, like the rest of the movie to come upon something like this and for it to lead him to eventually where he needs to be. Yeah. And I, I think there's something really interesting about that restoration. That's a great way to put it. Once he finds out where he is and who he's talking to, it's a really great parallel to that next sequence where he's running through the trenches, trying to pass all these folks. It's very similar to Blake at the beginning going through the trenches and passing all the folks and going through all that traffic. It's again, that kind of parallel that we see with the beginning and ending of Schofield leaning up against a tree. There's that moment right there where, where we see Blake excited, uh, determined to get out of the trenches to go find his brother. He's doing the same thing by going back in the trenches to go find his brother or find or, or deliver the message. And I don't know that that was intentional, but I thought it was very uh, effective. I did too. I am done. So <laughs> I'm ready to move on to the actual connecting point. Now that we talked about all the maybe connecting points. Uh, the close anything seconds? Else no, I don't, have we? I don't have anything else. All right. Well, I will let you go first, my friend. What was yours? If I had to pick a favorite sequence, it would probably be the moment that he wakes up after getting shot by the German what I feel like was the obvious cut of the movie because about, I guess about it seems like five hours, six hours passed that he was blacked out. He goes up the stairs or the camera goes up the stairs and we see the city ablaze with fire. There's all this cannon fire that's just lighting up the sky. It's a beautiful shot, by the way, it's just really. And then it, pans forward and we see him come out from under the camera and he goes through this burning city. I think it was a coast Saint mine. Is that correct? I don't know. It's some, we'll call it the French. Don't city. ask me to pronounce it. Yeah. We'll just call it the French city for our own purposes. But at one point after he's um, 
been accosted by the Germans that can't shoot straight, he goes in, he finds himself inside a house or in some kind of, um, barracks of some kind and he meets a woman and there's not a lot of dialogue she speaks french obviously and he he, they're having a small dialogue he finds out um where he is he's talking to her and then all of a sudden just like with blake's death we get this hint of something happening over to our right and it's a crying baby we find out that the baby is not hers. And it's the first time, Aaron, that I think we really get a visual expression of empathy from him because he starts just handing out all this food. He says, here, take this, take this, take all this stuff. And she says he can't eat that or she can't eat that. She needs milk. And Everybody in the audience is like, oh, my gosh, he's got milk in his canteen from earlier. Didn't even pick up on that little piece of of information until until that moment. Like, oh, that's it matters. So he cracks it open. He gives it to her. And then I don't know if this happens before that or after that, but she starts crying or she's getting really fussy. And he calms her down by singing a, a lullaby to her. I think at one point he holds his hand out to touch her hand and it is quite literally a connecting point. And I think for me watching him interact with her and watching him interact with this makeshift family reminded him that there is life outside of the dirtiness of war and what he's doing and he was motivated to get the message and he was motivated to connect with Blake's brother. But I think this added a layer of motivation for him to say, look, there's something more that I can live for, something that can motivate me that's not just on me. And so as we got the transference of Blake's death, his motive on to Schofield in that moment when he died, I think there was another transference or at least maybe a a reinvigoration of Schofield's personal motive that he had something to live for as well. Because up until that point, I think that his motives were sincere, but they were not personal. And that moment, I think, created, it reminded him of that personal motive that he had of his family back home. Yeah, so mine is the exact same, and it's for that exact same reason. Because, as I mentioned, how powerful that last shot being when he realizes, or when, sorry, when we as an audience realize through him that he has this family back home. And so when I watched it again, this really cemented this moment for me because of exactly what you just said at the end there, how now I know he has a wife and kids and he is not just a nice guy, which is what I kind of thought the first time through, but there's, I mean, he is a nice guy. He's very caring and it is beautiful that he is, acting that way um, when there is someone else there in need. But you're right. It becomes more personal for him. It's like a jarring of him. He, he kind of is pushed awake in a sense. It, it goes and reminds him why he needs to get home himself, why he needs to push through this. Um, there are people that are relying on him and 
there are people that he wants to get home to. I, I like that whole sequence as well. I think it is a beautiful addition, not only for its emotional connecting point nature, like you brought up and I agree with you, but uh, just it's the real slowdown point of the movie. Um, and, and we needed it. Like we had, we had to have that break. It, it was so intense and it gives you a moment to breathe. And even, even while you're still on high alert, like he is throughout that whole sequence, you're waiting, you're kind of, you're, you're very attentive to any sound that might occur because you're, you're looking around the corners waiting for something to jump out at him and for him to have to come up against. But she this is how he finds out how to get to the river. She's the one who gives him that information. Um, so it's a beautiful exchange of her giving him something he needs tangibly to get to where he can complete his mission and him giving away something that in essence he needs as well to complete his mission, his only sustenance, this milk um, for the betterment of this baby. And I think, you know, you could tell it was hard for him like to leave and he, he would have liked to have done more um, for them, but there was something bigger um, that needed to be done. And that bigger thing was in service of ultimately hopefully saving more of the people that are in this exact same situation that she and this baby were representative of the people that were suffering because of the war that was happening. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful sequence uh, and very, very important to the emotional arc of the film as well. Yeah. And what Mendez does here more specifically that um, I picked up on was he reminds us of the humanity that exists within the world of war that oftentimes we hear numbers, we hear statistics and what 1917 does with these two guys with Blake and Schofield is it gives us the everyman story. But even within that story, there's a microcosm story of other people who are not connected to the military segment of this are being affected by it. It, it kind of reminded me of the book thief where we have a main character who is living in world during world war two, but isn't necessarily attached to world war two. This woman and the baby were really reflective of the humanity that exists that we tend to forget about in war films. Absolutely. Good stuff, man. It is. It is. And that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. It's Director Month, and with that comes our continuing coverage of Makoto Shinkai's filmography. If you haven't checked out our first episode, please, please do that and listen to how much we gush about him as we start the ball rolling uh, to discuss four of his feature films. Next week, be sure to catch our conversation on his latest spectacular feature, Weathering With You. I know that Aaron's, I think he's excited about it. I'm not really sure. But dude, dude. <laughs> okay, so when you see a movie that nobody else gets to see, 1917, little context for you listeners, because of award season for us film critics, especially in Seattle, because our awards are towards early December, we have to see some of these films way in advance. And this is, I'm not even attending film festivals I saw 1917 like the first or second week of November, the first time I saw it. So in a theater, it and and I there's nobody to talk to about it. It's miserable. For, I mean, I know that it sounds like first world problems, but what I'm saying is the same thing happened with Weathering with You. I have wanted this for so long, and I wanted Patrick to be able to see it too, so he could enjoy it with me. And it's been 
awful because I've seen it like two times and I've completely immersed myself. I'm in love with it and I need someone to talk to about all of the crazy themes and the stuff that's going on in this movie. And I'm just waiting patiently. No, I'm impatient, Patrick. I'm so impatient, but it's coming and I'm so excited. I'm going to the fan screening, which is uh, the middle of the week and they have a specific uh, special Makoto Shinkai interview as well. I'm so excited. I'm going to see the English dub version so that I can compare it when we have a conversation. I'll compare the English to the uh, Japanese original because I will have seen them both. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going on and on. I'm excited. Yes, you're you're right. And apparently I'm here for movie therapy because he needs things to talk, you know, needs somebody to talk to about these oh, things. Absolutely. <laughs> well, also, uh, Patreon voting for January has officially ended and by a hair. Parasite has won over Uncut Gems. Fear not, though, for those of you who voted for the Adam Sandler-led feature, we will try to add that uh, to our list of upcoming movies. I'm not sure when, but we'll make sure to, to make a slot for that. But for now, we are going into the hashtag Bonglife. Speaking of our donors, uh, we'll have some bonus content for you as well coming up in the next few weeks, so you'll want to be tuning in for that. Aaron? Thank you for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.